Welcome to Behavioral Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We are building a community of people who want to learn about the application of behavioral science to work and life. We do this through having fun discussions with interesting and insightful people like our guest in this episode, Rod Wagner. Rod is a New York Times bestselling author and columnist for Forbes. His books have been translated into 10 languages and his work featured in the Wall Street Journal, Harvard Business Review, and Fast Company, among others. One of his books was even parodied by Dilbert. How awesome is that? That's pretty cool. Rod also serves as an executive advisor at SafeStart. So much of our discussion in this podcast was around safety. So we talked to Rod about a lot of things from writing books to the impact of sleep to checklists and the zen of safety. But what really excited us was our discussion of hedonic adaptation as it applies to safety. And we think so much more. We were also super excited to talk about the moral code of self-driving cars. How do we program those cars for making tough and moral decisions? We groove in depth on both of these ideas after our interview. So you need to listen to this episode because there's so many insights that could literally save your life. Now that's a powerful (laughs) motivator to listen. I think so. We really appreciate you listening. We have listeners from around the world and from many walks of life. You are part of the community that we are trying to build. We would be grateful if you could help expand that community by recommending this or another Behavioral Grooves episode to a friend. Also, if you're interested in talking with Kurt or me about the work that we do, helping companies positively impact uh, and apply behavioral insights to their organizations, well, don't hesitate to connect. Uh, we, love, we love connecting. So you can reach Kurt at Kurt at LanternGroup.com, or you can reach me at Tim at BehaviorAlchemy.com. We'd love to help your organization improve your bottom line with a behavioral lens. So please sit back with a fine listening beverage and enjoy our conversation with Rod Wagner. Welcome, Rod Wagner, to the Behavior Group Studios. Thank you. It's great to be here. Good to have you here. All right. Shall we begin with a speed round? Let's do. All right. All right. So speed round, real quick questions for you. Answer what comes to your mind. So coffee or tea? Tea. Swim, bike, or run? Um. Swim in the summer. <laughs> Not in the wintertime in Minnesota. We are in Minnesota. I just watch everybody in Excelsior jump in on New Year's Day. Oh. <laughs> they kept a hole in the ice and, and jumped in for the for the Alark uh, ice dive. Um, run. I'm on uh, pace to maybe for the third time get 100 miles in this month. Nice. nice. Congratulations. That is really good. 5K every day is the yeah, way to break yeah, it down. Yeah, basically, that's what you're doing. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Texting or drinking, which is more unsafe for driving? There's a pretty good argument out there that texting is more dangerous. It's not locked in yet, but a drunk driver, in most cases, is still looking at the road, and a texting driver is not. Yeah. Hmm. We'll, we'll talk about that later. Yeah. So, um, Solo, author a book, or co-write? I'm going to come back to co-authoring. I've done two mm-hmm. with co-authors, great experiences. Then I needed to do one by myself just to see how that worked. It was, it was enjoyable, and, and I was able to feel less responsibility for speaking on behalf of both of us. So I cut loose a little bit more. That was kind of fun. 
but then you really don't have anyone at the top of the mountain to high five. <laughs> oh, interesting. Okay. Well, you're, well, so, just, like, you're just there by yourself. Oh, yeah, I wrote this book. It's it's really a lot more fun to write a book with someone else. With someone else. Is but, it is is there a part of that where it's it's bouncing ideas off the other person, or is it like you said at the end where it's kind of that celebration part, or is it both? Yeah, along the way. Uh, so my next co-author, and I don't know when we'll get this. Finally, the, the back half of the manuscript finished and, and get it published. But my current co-author is my eldest son, Rod Parks Wagner. Now, he has my fir- same first name. So that's a pro- if I'd known we were going to write a book together, I would have given him a different name. <laughs> <laughs> that time-traveling machine. That's right. You'll get that. Yeah, hey. Because at home bad. we call him Parks, but all of his friends know him as, as Rod. Yeah. Um, but to sit down with him, go to Caribou or, or, or Starbucks or someplace like that, sit down and start graphing out how energy increases as speed increases and what do people get and not get about safety and, hey, let's pull up some research or go into, he led me into some alcove inside the University of Minnesota when he was attending there and said, hey, you got to see this study and we're pouring over all this arcane stuff about traffic design and what have you. That's... That's a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know that you can replace that with just working on a book by yourself. Yeah, and I, and I have not written a book. I have written a dissertation, which is often like a book, but that was a solo project, and it's lonely. I mean, you're going into coffee shops and writing stuff, but you're in the coffee shop alone, and, you know, and you're trying to... Exp- have people think about this, and you know, they, they're not interested. It's like, you know... A co-author, I would think, would be much more fun. So let's go back. Your first book was with Jack Harder, right? Wasn't Jim Harder? Jim Harder, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, the uh, Great Managing, the twelve. Yeah, my first book was Twelve: The Elements of Great Managing. Wrote it with Dr. Jim Harder uh, while I was at Gallup, and it was the. It's kind of a strange book in the sense that it was a sequel to First Break All the Rules, written by two people, neither of whom were the authors of the first book. <laughs> And there's an interesting story behind that. Okay. Uh, Marcus Buckingham and Kurt Kaufman were no longer at Gallup. Uh, Gallup owned the intellectual property around the Q12. Jim Harder was uh, heavily involved in, yeah. he- I, maybe should have been one of the co-authors of First Break All the Rules, given how much of the foundational science uh, that he had invented or, or been heavily involved in. Um, and I... He and I were at Gallup, and Gallup needed a book that would explain deeper the science of employee engagement and some of the discoveries uh, among the clients of Gallup. And so we traveled around the world for a while, gathered some really cool stories. That's the other thing is you're in the... And you get to do it together when you're you're co-authors. You get to razz each other about the fact that uh, when you go through security in uh, Gdansk, and it's pretty much a full body search and you get to see your co-author be very uncomfortable <laughs> with it. And then you say, you, you said you were missing your family. You're, you're not so lonely anymore. Are you? <laughs> so Tim, we haven't done international travel yet, but I'm going to make, I mean, I, I want to make sure I get to see you when you go through that security <laughs> we, yard thing. There we you go. often stay in the same room. Yeah, I know. That's in, a, we, in San Francisco, we stayed not only on the same boat, but in the same cabin. Yeah. So I, we get plenty of ex- exposure to each other. <laughs> anyway, okay, so that, oh, a little too so, much sharing. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. Right. Second co-author book, Power of Two, right, with Dr. Gail Muller, who, yeah. who sadly passed away a few years ago. But oh. one of the 
uh, most fulfilling experiences in my life. Um, and an interesting story as to how that came about. He was traveling among the various Gallup offices. He was vice chairman of, of Gallup and was okay. responsible at that time for all the consultants around the world. Traveled a lot. His time was at a premium. He came into the office and he talked about these ideas in the research around the behavioral economics of um, and behavioral game theory around collaboration. And he was very... He, he had strong commitments around the importance of working with someone else and particularly learning to work with someone who is very different from yourself. Mm. But that's a key to not only the workplace, but maybe the answer to an awful lot of problems yeah. that we have in the world today. Yeah. Um, and after he was done, I was responsible at that time for the consultants in the Minneapolis office. And to have additional time with him and just to be a good friend, I would drive him to the airport. So mm. that we could talk along the way. And after we left from that session, I said, Gail, that would make a really good book. You should think about that. And I wasn't. You weren't Jonesing for a co-author no, spot I wasn't, at this point? I wasn't. I was just like, you know, I'm in the publishing business. You just tossed out a really good book. Was idea. this the cub reporter coming out in you from 20 years before? I think it was more the just the author the, okay. uh, thing. Because a cub reporter in me would be a lot on a much shorter fuse. Oh. Oh, it exploded. <laughs> let's get some pictures. Let's interview some people and get in the paper tomorrow. Yeah. Um, I was, I had adjusted to a longer frame of reference, but I said, man, that you should, you should write that up. And he didn't react much until about a year later. He called me up wow. and he said, you know, I've been thinking about what you said. I think that would be a good book. And I'd like you to be my co-author. Would you would you do it like yeah sure let's that's do it. a that's a long think that's yeah. that's a long time just to hang on to an idea that's amazing well to think to use the word think right think about that for that long obviously it was something that captured his attention but he still had to contemplate it there was this element where it wasn't the as you said didn't get that immediate reaction yeah that's a great idea let's go and do this so is that his style or was this just that type of an idea that needed to percolate it, it may have been that he was just an extremely busy person that's always the case Didn't make a few more trips around the world take care of everybody he was uh, someone who was very conscientious about his responsibilities to other people um and so that's my i never ask him why'd you Take a year before you said right. it. But right. a year. Not just do. Did I want to write it with him? But just a year before you said, "Hey, this this would." You're right. This would be a good. So book. so was it a good experience co-authoring this? Oh, fantastic, Gail. Yeah, yeah. Going back and forth, and um, parts of it were the the manuscript grew to ninety five thousand words, and we got a scathing <laughs> four page email from our editor, Jeff Brewer, fantastic guy. It was absolutely on point. And he said, there are parts of this manuscript where I feel like I've gone to a dinner party and realized too late that I got stuck between you two while <laughs> you wanted to prattle on about your pet topic. <laughs> Thus, we proceeded to take 95,000 words and distill it down to 45,000. Wow. Yeah, those are great. But wow. after they're over, after you've boiled it down, it makes a nice battle story it was was at, it brutal though at points excruciating yeah to, to make yeah. it what it was yeah okay so you follow so uh most recently widgets last book widgets yeah the 12 yeah. new rules for solo effort. solo yes yeah yeah i wanted to do that i wanted to just see uh, having written two books with different co-authors what's it like to just sit down and, and write a book on your own yeah 
Um, the, the subtitle is the more important part of it. Widgets, the 12 new rules for managing your employees as if they're real people. As if they're real. Which That's is a, a behavioral economics uh, subtitle, oh, I would suppose. Terrific, yeah. And that came out of uh, time being practice leader at BI Worldwide, where I had the resources to ask new questions. The Gallup research on employee engagement was pretty long in the tooth. Mm -hmm. If you look yeah. at the, the copyright on that stuff, it's 1993 to 1998, 12 questions. They're good questions, but a lot has happened since 1998. Well, the world has changed a lot. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And to some degree, you know, I had, I didn't write it alone in the sense that, um, I had a research director with whom I worked closely, Dr. Brendakowski, okay. who wrote the technical appendix and was the person that it's really great to hang out with PhDs. Yeah. It's just because we're in that camp. Uh, or, uh, I, I'm in that camp because I get to <laughs> hang out with one all the time. I'm sorry. But yeah, yes. but you, you, I'm not a real PhD. I'm what, yeah, you, yeah. It, the letters are the same. They are. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm agree. Not there, so we had conversations, some very sometimes animated conversations about what were the right questions to ask? What was really going on? What should we do in the next wave of research? And how do we communicate this? What's the, what's the advice that we would give to people based on that, uh, that research? Well, and I think that's where, it, being actually real here, not, you know, the, the PhD really helps in thinking through so how are you conducting this research in such a way that, it, A, that it's valid, that it's reliable, that you then have something that actually points to some truth and not just some you know, data out there that is just data. And that's the, the piece that I think is really interesting in, in working on those. Which you got good stuff. You, you did. You, those 12 rules uh, reflected a, a, a new reality. Yeah, to some degree, it's one that requires employees to take a lot more responsibility for their careers than used to be. Yeah. Uh, th there's another book uh, called The End of Loyalty. It's, it's, I haven't read the whole thing. It's depressing. <laughs> <laughs> but, okay. you know, my father's IBM. You went to work for a company, and I never saw him suit up for an interview. I never saw a resume. I never heard any discussion about going and working someplace else because the IBM of that period of time would, once you're in the club, you're in the club. And they looked out for you, and they would develop you. And it meant you had to move a lot, which certainly marked a lot of my upbringing. Every two to four years, we switched and went to someplace because else. Because that's but, where your dad had the new position, right? Yeah. 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 They come to you and they say, we've got a, a role for you, but it's in Topeka, Kansas. And, okay, I guess it, we're going to Topeka yeah, for a couple of years. The answer is yes. Oh, yeah. When, it, well, it when, always when was, do we leave? That's the answer my father always <laughs> gave. And then my mom would sit us down and say, well, boys... We need to talk. And we look at, kind of look at the calendar and go, well, it's been about two years. We know what talk this is going to be. Uh, this is that conversation. And then, yeah. and then the bargaining started. Do we get a swimming pool? No. Do we get a dog? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I like that. I like that. So, yeah, kids are sharp. They you know, start to figure out how to negotiate it's things. It's all economics. <laughs> it's all there. So, so of those... The, the book, you, you obviously, you talked about a lot of different components, have a lot of great research and a lot of great insights on there. What part, from your perspective, 
you know, have people glazed over, maybe not paid as much attention to as you would have thought or that you would have liked? Like, is there a piece of any of those that you go, you know what, these 12 rules of engagement, wow, everybody's focusing on these eight, but, you know, this one over here is the one that, you know, I think people aren't really paying as much attention to as they should. Well, the one I've latched onto recently, and it's been to some degree a, a side project for the better part of 10 years, is the connection between leadership, management, employee engagement, and safety. Okay. And Which lends part, itself into this new book that you and your son are, are going to be called. Yeah, part of this is informed by my experience early in my career. I was a police reporter for the Salt Lake Tribune. And as a junior police reporter, you pull the holiday shifts. And I recall my first Christmas working there, I went to what is a quote-unquote routine fatality. Just one of those situations that you'd read about on any given day. Uh, but I'm standing at the scene talking with the incident commander, and I don't, I'll have to go find the story. I can't imagine that it was more than four or five column inches inside yeah. the local section of the paper. But it kind of messed with me because I was relatively new in the job and because it was Christmas. Yeah. And I thought, well, not only does this devastate this family, because they've lost their father, their their brother, husband, all that. It's messed up Christmas forever. Mm. That family is never yeah. going to experience Christmas in the same way. It's 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 marked for them forever, and forever. Yeah. And so when I started to get exposed to the research that showed that employee engagement was predictive of safety, it took me back to that situation to being on. Um, on the scene of an industrial site. I used to carry a scanner, <laughs> drive around the Salt Lake Valley. You'd hear when a call was called in, and sometimes you were closer. You'd carry a camera in case the photographers got there. Um, we couldn't get there after the thing blew up or whatever. You back, back when a camera was a separate thing than this than uh, device that you, you carry <laughs> well, with that, you yeah. all the time, I, right? I'm actually still carrying an SLR. The yeah. old habits die hard. But, uh, but yeah, a real, a real, a camera, real camera with, with maybe some film in it. Decent, and, yeah. decent optics and all those kinds of things. Um, the, um, but, but being at, this, at an industrial site when someone's wife drives up and the lieutenant goes over and explains to her their husband's been killed. I mean, that kind of makes an impression on you when you're in your early 20s. Yeah, and, you, and you're not a cop. You didn't sign up for, for the experience of being the person that's delivering the message, but you're, you're in close proximity to it, it, it being delivered. Right? Yeah, and you, and you actually end up bouncing around more from one thing to another because any one police officer doesn't see that much in a given day or even a week. Uh, the paramedics certainly see a fair amount, but if you're the police reporter, you just go to where news is happening, which means you see a lot. I, I have no idea how many fatalities I ended up covering. But then w later in my career, when I'm being exposed to this connection between employee engagement and safety, I think, well, okay, that's really serious stuff. Not that anyone else wouldn't appreciate that it was serious stuff, but it got burned into my brain a little bit more. And yeah. so hmm. I had this huge curiosity. Is there something about psychology, about the way we make choices, about leadership, management, whatever disciplines we can grab from, evolutionary psychology, anything, right. that can help us first understand how is it that people can make what I call a fatal flub 
a, just a momentary, not anything you thought through. You can't really, it's hard to even call it an error of judgment because that mm -hmm. usually means you had time to judge. But a snap decision that turned out to be horribly traumatic, is there a way to understand why that happens? And then is there a way to help people understand how to avoid those kinds of errors? And what do you think? What's, what's, the, what's, the, what's the answer? Well, I think there is. Yeah. Um, and, and, and this is this is research that you're working on currently? This is currently for the, for the next book. For the, yeah. and, I, and I'm also a, an executive advisor at Safe Start. And Safe Start's been doing this kind of work for uh, much longer than I've actually been thinking about it, training people on the front lines about their mental states and the kinds of errors um, that can be created if you don't appreciate that state that you're in. Um, the the behavioral economics of it would probably just be called a mindfulness or, or a military version would be situational awareness. Do you under, uh, metacognition, I suppose, is one way to think of it. Thinking about thinking. Yeah. Are you familiar with your own thinking right now? Do you realize that short of sleep as you are, you're at a substantially higher risk of having an accident? Um, are you able to appreciate that while an, an accident, a serious accident, is a low probability event. It's also a very high consequence event, and therefore it merits all kinds of investment of when you get in your car and you're making a 30-minute commute, it's the most dangerous thing you're going to do all day. Yeah. Yeah. Handle it that way. And don't have... Um, this is a place where hedonic adaptation will kill you. Yeah. You just get used to it. It becomes background noise, right? You and and you you cease to actually pay attention to it, and then and you re, and you and so you're not really using system two to actually consider. You're just in, you know, you're just in you're, uh, you're automatic. automatic response. Yeah, yeah, totally automatic response, totally system one. If you think about what it felt like that first time that you drove, mm -hmm. and you're gripping the wheel, <laughs> I could get in an accident. Well, yeah, you could. And there's two reasons why you could. One is that you're ignorant of how to drive. You have no motor memory or experience, and that's going to go away. But the other thing you appreciate when you're 15 with your learner's permit is, man, these cars are going fast. Yeah. I remember with my... And they're close. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. it's, oh my gosh, yeah. yeah. All of these things. Well, that's always true. It is. That <laughs> yeah. doesn't that's change. That's right. That hasn't changed. No. But our perception has changed. You just kind of go, oh, I'm just getting on the highway. Yeah. Well, no, you're actually getting into that same situation. Where there's a tremendous amount of kinetic energy, mm -hmm. one-ton vehicles flying down the road at 60 miles an hour. There's an incredible killing force, if not properly appreciated. And so to some degree, we have to fight hedonic adaptation and recognize that every time we get on the road, we are dealing with forces much greater than humankind ever dealt with and the evolutionary psychology of it, it it's just not there right yeah it's it's one thing to to think okay i didn't get much sleep so i need to be careful with my bow and arrow uh <laughs> you know the consequences are still relatively low uh with that but you get into a four thousand pound vehicle that can you know charge down the road at 70 miles an hour with no effort on the driver's part that's scary that's really scary. And, and this, this whole lack of sleep uh, takes me back to, we had a discussion with uh, Rashir uh, Sarah, um, and his, his whole uh, premise is sleep is the hub of so many other, not only diseases, but 
you know, consequences in our lives, you know, um, cognitive areas, cognitive, we, cognitive, are, you know, decreases yeah. and, and deficiencies and various different things. Yeah. It, the, the piece about this that I think going back to the speed round question, you know, we have this over self ideal that my ability to be able to drive and still answer that text. I know rationally I shouldn't do it, but Hey, I've done it a hundred times before and I haven't gotten into an accident and I'm better than the other 99% of the drivers on the road and being, I'm still kind of aware and yet we still do it. And there is that component. I find myself, you know, I will I'll go, oh, I'm only going to do it when I'm at the stoplight, you know, but then it's like the stoplight turns green and I'm not quite done. And so, and, and I go, just stop, just stop. But, you know, we don't. What, what are some of the, I mean, I don't know if you, you dwelled into that at all. And like, how do you get people to stop something where we, we know it's bad for we us. We know it's bad for us. And yet we don't. Yeah. I, th- I think it requires that we educate people and build into them a certain level of humility. Okay. And I don't know if that, it, it depends on the individuals whether they can be logically persuaded or they simply have to be emotionally persuaded. It's probably a combination of the two. Right, right. Because there is that knowledge part, but there's also the what's going to make us take action part. Yeah, um, because we have this, we do have an overcom- uh, overconfidence, uh, and we also have complacency. Mm-hmm. To some degree, complacency is simply our brains being economical. We have limited cognitive ability, and so we have to save that cognitive ability for the times when it's most important. However, the hedonic adaptation gets us to the point where we think, well, driving in the car is no big deal. Yeah. Uh, to some degree, we just have to remind ourselves, no, it, it is a big deal. Almost if you were to, to graph your, your level of risk throughout the day, we're here in the studio, we're at no risk whatsoever of... To our knowledge. <laughs> Short of a lightning bolt out of the blue or, or, a, or a gas line explosion. Yeah. We're really not at risk. But so if you're to graph your day and uh, relative to how dangerous certain times are, there'd be spikes during your commute or any time that you got in the car. It would also, there'd be a spike as well if you went rock climbing, if you went scuba diving. Yeah. If you're a lobsterman off the coast of Maine, you're, yeah. you're in a certain amount of danger all the time if you're logging or things like that. Uh, but to some degree, it requires people to think about here's what your day looks like and be as deliberate about your risk profile during the day as people are about their Fitbit. How many steps did I get today? <laughs> Am I going to go running? Am I going to go to the gym? Okay, that's great. You're graphing out your whole day and you understand well, how much sleep did I get? All those kinds of things. Now, just take the extra step. If you'd like to be there for your grandkids' wedding, take the extra step of thinking about your risk profile during the day. So we Love saw uh, Sendhill Mullenathan um, M- uh talk at a, a conference, and he was doing some work with at-risk youth in Chicago, gang members, various different things, where uh, they put them into this program called BAM. Uh, basically taught them... Be a man. Be a man, is the, the, the acronym acronym for that basically taught them some mindfulness techniques and just kind of conversation and talking. But the, the quote that, that he talked that I think resonates with what you're talking about here is he said, 
so he goes, I could not believe that that would help, that you're, you're getting people to do, you know, this quiet meditation kind of piece, and that's going to actually impact their lives. But it, the, statistically, he said it did. And, and the, the quote that he used was from this uh, Cook County juvenile uh, deputy who said, if I could snip out 30 seconds of life from any of these kids, uh, they would not be in here. He and it's, said, it's the 30 seconds between the that, time that the problem happened and the, and the and their amount reaction. of time it took them to take out a gun and shoot somebody else. And now and they're the in reaction. the reaction. And he said it because... Them back up and say, wait Because a he Take said, a you know, he goes... You're dealing in you're you're in this ghetto or this this neighborhood that is there, and most of the, you know, the responses, the the right response in most instances is that immediate like somebody's threatening you, you you push back right, and it's it that's the appropriate response, but the fact of the matter is is there are those moments where it's not like when somebody you get in a fight over a bike and you pull out the gun, you know, and so. That's not, you should have taught, you know, if you would have taken just more, two more seconds to think about that, you would not have done that or you wouldn't have done it in such a threatening manner. It was really an interesting piece, but it sounds like you were talking like that, you know, there's those moments in our life that if we're just more mindful of them, more thoughtful of and planful of them, it reduces our, our overall safety risk. Is that? Yeah, I think there are certain things that you can do from a strategic standpoint and, a, and as well as a tactical one from a strategic standpoint. It's getting more sleep. I just wrote a piece for Forbes uh, saying here's eight reasons why sleep should be at the top of your New Year's resolution list. Whatever resolutions you made for this year, they're all going to happen better and more easily be more likely if you get good sleep. It's everything from from health to sticking to your diet yep. to uh, accomplishing. Th- I, I notice that if I am short on sleep, my writing falls apart fast. And it doesn't take much of a decrement of the sleep before it really messes with me. And I notice it in my typing. I'll notice I make more typos. And the words don't come to me, which that's a... F- it, it, it comes back to the humility about the capacity of your own brain. Yeah. Well, you know what? These are fine little decisions, and I don't know the neurobiology enough to know exactly what part of my brain, which neurons are talking to which. They're not firing the way they normally should. And, and it's in large part due to getting an hour or two hours less sleep than you normally do. Right. And there's a really good book I recommend to everyone called um, Why We Sleep. Uh, Matthew Walker, who runs the neurobiology and sleep imaging lab. I probably mangled that at uh, University of California, Berkeley. We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And I, I, that is, that has been one of the, what do they call it um, now? I think they're calling it a quake book. Um, One that rattles you and changes how you view things. And one of the things that he, if you finish that book, you will get yourself to bed on time or get (laughs) or sleep in a little bit because he talks about the, the health implications, the safety implications, the productivity, every, the creativity, collaboration, social instincts. We get if we, short of sleep, we get all primitive and tribal, and we growl at each other. Get enough sleep, and you're like, sure, yeah, I can compromise. Yeah, that would work. Yeah, let's 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 try it your way. I can think of some politicians that could use some extra sleep. Yeah, I, I, I can think of my son. I, I I notice when my son has had a a night of not good sleep, he is gruffer. He is more likely to snap. Uh, it just like his little sister says the most innocuous little thing 
and is like, just attack on it. You know, if he would have gotten his eight hours, nine hours of sleep, he would have been like, eh, whatever. He might have given her a little jostle, but it wouldn't have been this, you know, attack mode. The, the grizzly bear the attack. The grizzly bear coming in. Yeah. It's it, it's interesting because we can see it in others. Sometimes it's very hard to see in ourselves. Oh, so. yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, so the, the back half of the manuscript we're working on right now, we'll lead with a chapter on sleep, the fixes. So you just talk about the fatal flubs up front. Talk about the fixes. The first fix strategically is get yourself enough sleep because it just, it covers everything else. Then you get into issues like time and space. And I don't mean space time, the... The, the, the space-time continuum. The, the galactic, <laughs> you know, the universal, gravitational, <laughs> melded, all that kind of stuff, which really throws me. No Einstein component. No, I okay. mean the simple, separate space and time, safe following distance. and, and Oh, oh uh, and like using an automobile as a, an example. Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah, there's a gentleman named um, Steve Kastner wrote a book called Careful that's along these lines. And he was interviewed a year or so ago, and they were asking for tips. And one of them he said was, well, imagine whatever you're doing that it continues to travel further than you intended. That's basic Boy Scout knife safety. Yeah. And I said, okay, always aim the knife away from you so that if it continues on. But another thing that he said was, leave late, arrive late. Stop trying to make up time on the road. Oh, right. yeah. <laughs> if you want to be on, and, and I, the, I notice this when I go to the airport, I'll give myself extra time. Not only do I ensure that I get to the airport early, my drive to the airport is really enjoyable. We'll put on a podcast. Someone cuts me off. It's like, well, whatever. I got time. Yeah. It just yeah. changes everything. So there is something to be – so from a purely practical standpoint, having additional space and having additional time dramatically reduces the likelihood of having an accident. I might be a little bit off on the percentage here, but the difference between a car moving 30 miles an hour and a car moving 40 miles an hour, it's a 78%, roughly 78% increase in the energy in the vehicle and the stopping distance. Most of us think, well, I'm going a third faster, so the stopping distance would be a third more. No, yeah. it's close to double. And that's not something we intuitively appreciate when we're when we're um, driving a vehicle. So a lot of what a lot of the traditional um, personal protective equipment that people wear in an industrial environment, or the high visibility kinds of things that we have. I noticed that now the the stoplights are flashing. Yeah. Stop signs. Stoplights always flashed, but the stop signs are flashing. Well, I can see it. Mm -hmm. You don't have to beat me over the head with it. Um, we keep trying to find ways of having our cars beep at us and the stop signs flash at us and all this kind of stuff to make us appreciate that they're there. We already know they're there. What's needed is a, a mental strategy that says, if I slow down just a little bit, I give myself all that extra time that all this high visibility stuff is trying to give me the, that extra little bit of warning. If you slow down, you've accomplished it right there. Which what? might be inevitable with uh, the greater automation in automobiles, right? I, I, it, would, it would be hard for me to imagine that with a highly automated self-driving car that I get in and say, I, I've only got 10 minutes to get someplace that I normally take 15 minutes to get to. Hurry up. I can't imagine the car the, saying... The car would overrule you? I think the car would say, screw you. <laughs> Dude, you should have gotten in the car five minutes ago. 
yeah. or you know probably done it in a really nice British vernacular, you know, <laughs> well, British accent. That opens up a whole other area that's going to just be a fascinating one over the next couple of years. And I, I wrote a piece for Forbes about um, uh, that we we we're not going to be able to collaborate with the robots until we understand the division of labor. They had that car down in in Arizona, automated car, had a backup driver. She's watching some yeah America's, YouTube video, America's greatest talent or something like that on her phone. The car got confused as to why this pedestrian, what what this was up in the road, categorized it three different ways until finally said, oh no, that's a person, but it was too late, hit the brakes, killed this woman. How do we, it's messy enough when we're on the road and trying to figure out what the other driver's going to do when it's a human. And you look at them to see, are they kind of weaving? Do they look like they're looking at their phone? Uh, is this an older person? And that's why they're driving 20 in the, in the right lane or the middle lane or, or whatever that might be. And now we're going to ha- add the complication of, I suppose it's almost like theory of mind for a robot. Yeah. Yeah. What's the robot thinking? And there's all kinds of people who are trying to understand how people read the mind of a robot. So it's that transitional wow. phase from when we go from everybody driving their own car to when everybody is in an autonomous-driven car, that that in-between where there's both on the road, where it's going to be really messy because we just can't – we haven't been – we haven't evolved to think, like, how does that robot thinking and what are they doing? I read um, somewhere, and I don't know if you know anything about this, but they were talking about putting um, eyes on the – autonomous people mover um like the the autonomous bus that they were doing that would look to where the to to give people that sense of the robot where the where the car was going to be moving to oh that the, that the yeah. bus sees you that the bus actually yeah that that and they said it was just this really interesting piece again because otherwise people did not they would not act normally because they would realize that there wasn't a driver in that bus and they would then stop when normally they would just keep going, but they would not do what they were, what you would anticipate them to do. Because again, to your point, if there was a driver, how do I, I don't understand how do I, what am I supposed to think about? How is a, an autonomous vehicle supposed to react? And what am I, I don't have those cues. There's a guy at one of the car companies and I'm sorry that I don't recall which one it was. Uh, he, has or they have been using what they call a seat suit. It it makes a human look like a car seat so that he can be in control of the vehicle, but people can look at the vehicle and it looks like an empty seat. Okay. So he's not going to run anyone over because he's actually driving the vehicle, but they're doing, and I assume they have cameras and whatnot to look at the pedestrians to see how do they react to a car that has no driver in it. So they can understand what kind of signals do we... My guess is that down the line... Car, that the uh, the robots will be better drivers. Yep. So they won't fall asleep and they won't text and and they will learn to coordinate with each other. Um, but in between, we are going to be very confused as to how to communicate with these things. And the the thing that makes it complicated is we haven't really cracked the code on keeping ourselves safe when it's just people out there. Right. And now we're going to compound it with robots. Right. It's, it's almost like AI morality. There, there, there's, there are some decisions that are going to have to be made. I go back to the trolley 
the you know the, the the trolley car study you know if you if you push the lever you know the the trolley goes off to another direction and only kills one person but if you don't pull the the the, the lever uh then the trolley will kill five people and uh you know, humans tend not to make that decision. They don't like to get involved and actually take the the action to save five people. So do we train the cars? Do we program that program that into the car when it has an opportunity to make a decision? Do I go straight ahead and kill five people or do I turn and kill one person? We've got a, maybe moral is a, a heavy head in word, but but we do have to make those kinds of considerations in the way the cars are programmed. That was a topic of conversation at this year's um, National Safety Council uh, convention. Yeah. What are the rules of the road, and and how do what how what how do we want to program the vehicles to make these kinds of decisions? You get yourself to iRobot really quickly with the uh, the yeah. rules for robots. You know, robot cannot injure yeah. a person, and and all those types of things. But how do you do that? And, and, and to that point, and you can get into even more philosophical components of, so you have the same trolley car thing, but it's two elderly people versus one child. It, yeah. yeah it, you know, and now you're getting into this component of values and different pieces. It can get really messy. And yeah. I just, I'm, yeah. But if we bring it back to, to just your run quote unquote run of the mill accident. Yeah. For, so the robot thing's gonna get really, really weird. Yeah. Um and complicated. I'm hoping that as we think about the robots, <laughs> it will help us by contrast to better understand how we think and to be safer as humans. To say, well a robot would do this and fully appreciate, well guess well humans fall asleep. Yeah. Well humans are distracted by their phones. Why would we be? Why would we do something like that? There's some interesting, I would argue, evolutionary psychology around that that we can get into. Uh, but to appreciate what we need to do to avoid those kinds of accidents, it strikes me that a serious or fatal accident is one of the situations where we agonize incredibly over the decisions after the fact and study them very little going in. It's one of the reasons why, why people will say, if someone gets in a fatal accident, they'll say, well, that was stupid. Yeah. Well, in, in retrospect, of course, it always seems stupid. And because you know how it ends, it seems especially stupid. And then we'll go out and do exactly the same thing. We shouldn't have been texting, really. How many of us have picked up the phone? While we, well, it went, I, I can look at it really quickly. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and you <laughs> don't say, well, oh, I'm being stupid. Yeah, you are. Yeah. Of course you are. Uh, but we just, so why, how is it that we take this one thing and we study it, we obsess, like well, if I had only left a little earlier, if I'd only slowed down, if I'd only, uh, if I had only, uh, been aware that someone might've been coming out of that, that blind corner, this tragedy would have been avoided. And yet prospectively, we're not really good at saying, I think I need, just in case, I ought to give myself a little bit of a buffer. I was coming back from a business trip uh, a couple weeks ago, and I'm trying to follow all the things. I don't think I was coming right back from the National Safety Council conference, but it, but it wasn't long <laughs> Pretty after Pretty close. Should, yeah, be, yeah. should be vivid in your mind, though. But, you know, I'm, I'm as fallible as anyone. I've made many of the mistakes we've all made along the way, and, and, and that means you're simply, it's a matter of luck as opposed to control, which that should scare any control freak like, like I am. Um, <laughs> 
on this particular day, I'm following everything. The phone I put in the back seat, I got the radios not turned up too much, and I'm, I'm not in a big rush. I'm just driving home, and this deer bolts out right ahead of me. Yeah. It was a close call. Daylight hours? No, night. Yeah. You know, it, goes, it goes bolting, you know, headed back from the airport. And I thought, okay, if, no big deal. Passes, heart rate didn't even go up. Maybe the deers did, mine didn't. Um, and I thought, now wait a minute. If I had been looking at my phone, I would have clipped that deer. Yeah. If you, I was been driving you, you faster, you braked. You slowed down. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was yeah. it was you know it, was enough. You you were paying enough yeah, attention. Missed having, it by four yeah. or five feet. Yeah. You know, not didn't didn't dent the bumper or anything like that. But I thought two errors that uh, that I am um, amenable to looking at my phone. If someone mm-hmm. texts, well, I'll just look really quickly. Or if I had been speeding, yeah, I would have clipped the deer. Just that simple. But we don't think about we don't think about these accidents in, uh, prospectively. It's a lot of the work that we do at Safe Start is to try to help people understand their mental mistake, to kind of give them an owner's manual. Hey, here are the things that the ways that we are fallible. We have to appreciate what kind of mental states we're in and what kind of errors that can lead to. We talk a lot about complacency. Mm-hmm. It's our natural resting state. And I don't know that that's, we had a conversation there um, just the other day. Is, is that a negative term? Most people think of complacency as a negative term. Well, in that frame that way, I suppose, but it's really about neurobiological economy. Right. Yeah. Right. It's the status quo bias. We, we just get, complacent within you know what we do we like what we do it's like why change and right? and our brain needs to save resources for times when it's important so we're simply confused by the fact that no this is important you might want to pay <laughs> a little bit closer attention I but, like I like that that phrase you know we're simply confused about that this is important you know well, we're, we're we also don't know what we don't know we don't see what we don't see uh, I love Dan Simon's uh, work on when he he studied uh, bicycle riders who had been hit by cars and uh 47 of the time the bicyclist said i made eye contact with the driver before i crossed in front of them and the driver still hit them they still t-boned them and the driver said i didn't see them i the driver had no recollection of making eye contact or even being aware of the bicyclist until he or she was on the hood and so we if we're not actively paying attention, no way are we going to see stuff like this. There's a study I found that I, uh, my son and I put in the book of pilots on a flight simulator. They're flying. I forget the, the plane they're simulated, but they're flying into Memphis. And they dropped in various little scenarios, one of which was an intruding aircraft. And they had... And in, in, in the simulation. In the simulation. Okay. So on the, on the radar screen, not on the right in front of them, but on the radar screen, it shows, I believe it's a, like a light blue turquoise intruding aircraft coming in. It's either on the runway or it's coming into their, their passage, uh, their, you know, their line of attack, not line of attack, um, line of descent. You've and, spent too much time with military stuff. <laughs> 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 um, and... They also had eye tracking technology, so they knew where they were looking in the simulator. Are they looking up through the windshield? Are they looking at the controls? Are they looking at the radar, what have? And in a number of cases, they found that people were looking directly at the spot where the intruding aircraft was coming in and didn't see it. Yeah. 
it's the invisible gorilla component that we, you know, the, how many times have you shown that that video and, you know, people aren't it's a gorilla Simons. dancing in front Dan of you Simons and again. you yeah. you don't see it. And the know? invisible gorilla one, I think, is fascinating, partly because it's a gorilla. That's always um, <laughs> It, it, it's fascinating, but it's an artificial environment. It is. And there was a professor at, I believe it's Western Washington University, who, I I don't know how this came about. He must have shown this to his class and said, you know, hey, we should do an experiment along these lines. But they didn't want to replicate the gorilla thing. And one kid came up to him and he said, hey, I got a unicycle. He's like, okay, that's good. He says, I got a clown suit too. <laughs> says, hey, would you ride that in the quad while we watch what happens? Same thing happens. People, whether they're on their phone or not, whether in a conversation or not, they walk through the quad and then at the other end of the quad, they'd say, hey, did you see anything unusual when you walked through there? No. No. See a clown on a unicycle? <laughs> no. Didn't, didn't happen. This stuff will scare you. It I mean, does. Look at this research. I now I'm I'm scared to get in my car these days because for a couple reasons. One, if you think about our vision, our vision is what's called foveated. Mm-hmm. So we got two you know on each retina. There's a little spot back there. I understand it doesn't even have blood vessels to the 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 oxygen just kind of permeates through to give us maximum concentration and definition. But it's only in a little spot. If you yeah. if you look straight ahead and try to get any kind of focus from the side of where you're looking, it isn't there, yeah. which means you're filling in everything based on assumptions and you don't see things. And the, we, the brain's doing it. Yeah. The brain's filling in a picture, an image of what, they, what the brain thinks it ought to be, right? To some degree. And so consequently, we're not seeing as much as we think we're seeing. Sometimes when we're looking directly at the radar screen, we're not seeing the intruding aircraft because oh. we are not. It's a, um, in the UK, it's called um, Smidsey. Sorry, mate, I didn't see you. It's the reason why motorcycle accidents happen all the time. Someone looks down their own eye and see the motorcycle. Yeah, that's what just Tim was talking about with the bicyclists, you know. Yeah. Can't, don't yeah. see it. So that scares me. You, you go through this and you realize you get a tremendous humility. There are things, if I'm not really on my game, if I don't slow down a little bit, and if I don't pay attention, turn down the radio, put the phone away, there's a very good chance I could miss something. And then the other thing that scares me, I think it was Wired Magazine that said, they've summarized the research on texting and driving and playing with your phone. They said, just about everybody is on the phone while they're driving just about all the time. So even if you're being perfectly attentive... You are on the road with people who are looking at their phones, and you have to make the assumption that they don't see you, or they're gonna, uh, they're, they're, they could rear-end you, or something like that. Yeah, that's so crazy. Something we uh, just for listeners' sake, Rod and I were colleagues uh, for several years, uh, and uh, we talked about a lot of things. But I don't know if we ever talked about what is it that got you interested in the in the behavioral and the psychological stuff. What was it? Was there a catalyst? Part of it was being a police reporter years ago. Oh. It's, to some degree, graduate school of bad decisions. <laughs> you get to ride in a fire engine. That's fun. Okay. But who, doesn't, you, who doesn't like yeah, that? <laughs> it, it is when you do it at the age of 25, it's everything you thought it would be when you're five years old. Yeah, it, it is that. And, and the, the firefighters would call me sometimes, the paramedics, and they'd say, hey, we're doing a simulation. We need a compound femur fracture. Would you mind lying on the ground? We're trying to get victims to do the simulation. Would you, would you be that? So that, that's, I mean, you get to hang out with 
It's Firefighters. A, it really is a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you also see a tremendous amount of tragedy. I remember in particular, uh, back in the, the cocaine days, mm. I was covering federal court and this guy came in to be sentenced to five to life or something like that. And he'd been a cocaine dealer. He'd also been a cocaine user. And he stood before the judge and explained how he'd made all these bad choices in his life. And his nasals were so rotted out with the cocaine that he, he talked like, I mean, I can't replicate it entirely. It was this deep, hollow sound because he burned out his, his sinuses from, from cocaine. And you go away from that and you just, as a student of human nature, which I think most journalists are, you become very puzzled. Like, how could someone make a series of really bad decisions that would have him there with no sinuses, regretting the decisions he'd made and going to prison for, for five to life? And, but it also got really depressing, surprisingly, you know? <laughs> yeah. uh, and so when I migrated to working on issues of leadership and management, I really wanted to gravitate toward the good side. We spend most of our working hours at work, or most of our waking hours at work. And are there things that a manager, a leader, a colleague, a mentor can do that can help people avoid making those really bad decisions, whether that's uh, really good, so they're really good career decisions. They're happy at work. They learn things. They get a sense of self confidence. They uh, one uh, fast food client that I had had a um, we we interviewed a person who said that she was afraid to talk to strangers, and through helping people with their pizza orders, realized it's strangers aren't scary. And wow. And that's a big deal. That you wouldn't think that deal. would necessarily come from taking pizza orders, but no, that's you realize that people are growing in these situations. And so to some degree, I kind of ricocheted from this graduate school of bad decisions to, well, who out there is in the best position to influence someone to have a happy, productive, safe life? It's their leaders. It's their managers, their colleagues, the people that we interact with on a regular basis. And I wallowed in that. And and the books I've written so far have really highlighted not these terrible tragedies, but these situations where someone at work has made someone's life really tremendously better. So Rod, you had talked about sleep being one of those key components to, of this element around safety, the space time. Not continuum, but that space and time. <laughs> space and time. What, what else? What else have you that's found? The part, that's the part that's framing up. Um, checklists turn out to be important. Checklists? Yeah. Explain more. Uh, there's a gentleman named Atul Gawande who wrote a book called The Checklist Manifesto. Mm -hmm. And he writes it from the standpoint of healthcare. Uh, and had applied a number of these in hospital settings and, and noticed that the number of errors... You know, working on the wrong leg or whatever. This is the reason why when you go into the hospital, they ask you to circle and initial the knee that's being replaced so they, they can't make a mistake because in the hubbub of things, these things, they don't happen often, but when they do, they can be, that's bad. They're big, right? <laughs> yes, <it's> bad. <laughs> bad um, consequences, significant consequences. And small probability, really high bad outcomes. And a lot of this is borrowed from my, my son's industry, aerospace. Uh -huh. Before you fly an airplane... 
you're supposed to check certain things to make sure because once you're up there at 30,000 feet, it's not really the time to go you know, get out there and, and fix that. So, you know, and, and this has all been aviation is incredibly safe. Yes. Safer than driving. It's there are years that go by when no one gets killed in any major um, major aviation. The little planes, they're always a little bit dicey because they get kicked around. But it's incredibly safe, and it's safe because of checklists. And I have one when I launch my boat. There's certain things that have to happen. And at the beginning of a season, I have to reacquaint myself with the checklist. Yeah. By July, it's built into my head. It's not, it's not a song or anything like that, but I know I need to do this and lower the trim and this and that and the other and got to check this and all these kinds of things to make turn on the blower to make sure we don't explode the thing, when we've, all that kind of stuff to make sure that we're safe. Well, if you're going to be doing anything like that, I, I was rock climbing. Uh, Lifetime Fitness last night. There's certain things you do before you go mm -hmm. up there to make sure you don't come down three stories. Checklists are a way of making sure that our our limited cognitive abilities don't get the better of us. And the more um, the more dangerous the situation, the more important the checklist is. Mm. Mentoring, I think, is important. Uh, in one of uh, your previous episodes, I forget the gentleman's name, Barry, um, Barry Ritholtz. Talk about the power of, power of stories. Yeah. We don't learn that well from textbooks. Mm -mm. And in a situation where, let's say, you're going rock climbing or you're learning how to drive a boat or you're going to go scuba diving, there is no substitute for someone showing you what to do directly, hands on, and also telling you some stories. Because that's what it sticks makes with it us. Vivid. Yeah, those are the things that when you're down there, and all of a sudden scuba diving, and you get this, you know, element where, holy crap, what just happened? You don't you don't remember necessarily the 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 twenty different you know people talking one and then this and here, but you tell that's the story of the guy going, oh yeah, I was in the situation once, and you go, oh yeah, that's it. This Those is, come to the pop to the top of your mind. This is something that my son and I have wrestled with because if you're writing a book about fatal accidents, that could be morbid, it could be grisly, it could be incredibly depressing. We we take pains to make sure that we don't get into the the gruesomeness right. of it all. You know, if someone died, they died. We don't describe just how awful it was. Dead is dead. We focus more on what happened before. But we made a conscious decision that we were going to be telling a lot of stories about how people died because it's the only way to make it stick. To say, well, this guy went into this situation, unfortunately happened. This guy went into the tuna cooker and his colleague saw the cart sitting there and assumed he was on a restroom break, closed up the, the cooker, and they fired the thing up and then no one could find this guy. His car was still in the parking lot. They ask over the intercom, you know, where, where, where is he? And then someone says, oh, geez, no. And they open up the cooker, and he had expired in there. Well, I don't know how you teach someone the importance of not assuming unless you tell a story about someone who died because someone made an assumption so that once you hear that story, you go, you know what? I don't think we should ever close the cooker without having a straight line of sight all the way through. And having just because a we don't checklist, see, checklist, yes. checklist. Have as someone look, and that is actually the 
the prescribed way I do it. You know, you do enclosed, there's basic enclosed space protocols that you go through yeah. that there's always two people there yep. and one knows where the other is and you never shut an enclosed space unless you're sure that everyone is out and all those kinds of, you never, you never make those kinds of assumptions. That's a terrible story. I don't even like telling that story. However, I don't know if the alternative is you don't tell the stories and people then replicate them. They go and make the same mistake. It is the way we are evolutionarily wired to hear a cautionary tale and then be able to translate that and get left of the, what the military would call left of boom, you know, instead of <laughs> experiencing it or having a close call and then saying, oh, okay, because that you might, that close call might not work out. You might just die. It's better if we can understand these things at the front end and, and be cautious about it. My, my, this drives my kids crazy because I'm a safety freak. Um, when we go out on the boat, they bring their friends and I do a little safety briefing before we leave. Try that with 13 year olds. Like, <laughs> really dad, you're going to do a safety briefing. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I'm out here with six kids, five of whom are not my own. I'm going to bring six back yeah. intact. Intact. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's really simple. You just say, here's where your life jacket yeah. is. Uh, you're 13. You don't necessarily have to wear it all the time. If we're not going all that fast, you know, we can putter around and I, you know, I'm not, I'm not that worried about, we're going to be common yeah. sense about it, but you need to know where it is. You also need to know, and this, the DNR makes a sticker for your boat that says, stop the prop that I, when you are in the water, do not approach the back of the boat unless you yell to me and make sure the prop is off. It's my job to turn off the prop, but it's your leg. So you might want and never get near that, you know, just basic kind of stuff that we yeah. would tell them. And it just, my kids would just cringe like, really dad, do we have to do the safety briefing? Yeah. We do. And, and, and how was your record? How did you do? Uh, so far, we're good. You know, I never, I never say we're, we're in the clear. No, but, but so yeah, far. Yeah. yeah. Everybody okay. who's ever been on, on my boat comes up. We haven't had a scratch. Yeah. Yeah. And there was a, the zebra mussels are clearing up Lake Minnetonka now where you can see deeper. But a few years ago, it was cloudy enough that if you were about a foot under the water, you couldn't be seen. Yeah. So the rule was you're either wearing a PFD or someone is actively lifeguarding you. Because if you get in trouble and you're around the side of the boat, no one's going to be able to see you. So it's just wow. not its just not worth it. And you know, people die on Lake Minnetonka every summer through some little thing that if they could, like what you said about take that 30 seconds back. Yeah. If you could roll back the clock, you'd go, man, I'd give anything to take that back, to do that differently. Well, let's take that thinking and let's apply it left of the situation so that, you know, when my kids, like, one of them said the other day in a text, they said, yeah, dad living, dad living on the edge is checking his side mirror four times instead of five. Yeah. <laughs> to which I say, you, you know, I say right? that you're welcome. Yeah. 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 yeah you're I, welcome. You might notice you're all intact and, and I know That's you think right. I'm a safety freak, but actually if you look at people like the, 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 uh, the, I'm not so sure about the guy that free soloed El Capitan. There's a couple that uh, just climbed with ropes. I'm, I'm an advocate of ropes. But if you look at anyone who is doing something um, intense, Denise um, Mueller-Korneck and Shay Holbrook, who beat the land speed record for a bike dragging oh, yes, behind yes. a drag racer yeah. in September. Yeah. 186 or some miles 183 per hour. 183 point. Ooh, I forget what go. was behind yeah. the point. Uh, fastest, not just for women, fastest, yeah. period. Ever. Right. Ever. 
Um, they obsessed over safety and collaboration with each other. Anyone that's climbing El Capitan, they're obsessing over safety. So safety isn't this, oh, let's sit on the couch and not take any risks. Safety is, let's go do some really intense things and live to come back and do really intense things again. It's mm-hmm. just a matter of having that little slight, that slightly catastrophic thinking in advance of the catastrophe, then make sure it doesn't happen. So, Rod, I want to go back. Sorry, Tim's given. He wants to go to music, I can tell. Um, I want to go back just to, uh, you talked about this, using these very vivid stories, these horrible components that are coming in there. And I, I, I go back to this component of how do you ensure it's the, it's the accident movie that we all saw if you're of a certain age that you saw when junior high or, or you know freshman year in high school where it's the crash and you know all the blood and guts and that was supposed to keep you from drinking and driving or prom night those kind of things that all of the research shows actually didn't do anything and if anything might have even worsened the situation because people cognitively shut down because it's so horrible that they just actually block all of that out of their mind because it's just too painful to think about. Yeah, it is. Um, And I saw some of those films. Actually, my, the, the physical education teacher shut it off and he said, we're not, we're not watching this. It's a scare tactic. It's like, Hey, you could die. Okay. we, We all get that. Yeah. We all get that. We could die. You can't just scare someone into being safe. Yeah. Uh, and there is, we have certain blocks that where we say in, in, um, in management overall, it's called terror management theory. Okay. It's the idea that we are all uncomfortable with the idea that someday we're going to die. Mm-hmm. And so anything that disrupts our life kind of reminds us a little bit that someday we might die. So if you move someone's chair or, or office or whatever, or you change their title or whatever, they freak out. Why? Because to some degree, you're kind of tickling that little part of their brain that like, you know, someday you're going to die too. Like, ah, don't, don't do that. Right. (laughs) And if you show them that kind of a film, like, Hey, look at this crash. Boom. This was grisly. Don't do that. We put up barriers and we say, that's, I can't accept the fact that that might happen to me mm-hmm. and I'm not that bad of a driver. You, you, right. you get the overconfidence thing coming in. And rationalization. All, yeah. Yeah, yeah. All those kinds of things where you're like, that's not me. Well, eh, no, if, but for the grace of God, it, it just might be you. I believe this kind of gets to the, the last, um, this will all spoil the ending of, of the manuscript we're working on. <laughs> I think it actually comes down to a, a Zen thing. Okay. And there's a gentleman named Robert Wright who wrote a book called um, Why Buddhism is True, I believe is the title of it. And it's all about his personal journey and meditating and all that kind of stuff. But at the front end, he says, I'm not trying to persuade people doctrinally to Buddhism. I'm trying to persuade uh, people to, he's an evolutionary psychologist. He says, I'm trying to persuade people to the the greater truth in there that we are wired to be routinely unsatisfied with everything. Mm. That our deep, deep, deep ancestors always had to battle. They had to rush. They were always in a fight for their life and we're built that way. And so we have this hedonic adaptation that says, no matter how much we have, we're like, I need more. I need to go faster. I need to get to the airport. Now I got a meeting. I got to go boom, 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 boom. All these kinds of things that do two things. One, make us unhappy and two, make us unsafe. I think the answer really is to help people from a 
a philosophical and a strategic standpoint, like take a deep breath, cut out some of the stuff in your schedule, get a full night of sleep, have a nice breakfast, walk the dog, then give yourself, you got to be there in 30 minutes, give yourself 45 minutes, got extra time, stop at the gas station, buy yourself a candy bar right next to wherever it is you're going to stop or whatever. Have a conversation with someone. You never know what you're going to, and you're not going to feel all freaked out along the way. You're less likely to worry if someone cuts you off. You're going to drive, you're going to give yourself a safe following distance along the way. So I think ultimately, the kinds of things that are, that the research says are important for our happiness, being satisfied with what we have, mm-hmm. um, taking life a little slower, um, being conscious of what's going on around us taking in how others are feeling and, and what they might be, wh- where they might be at, both so that you can look out for them, but also look out for them if they're <laughs> driving and texting at the same time. I think that's at the, at the heart of it, that um, mindfulness or metacognition to think about your own thinking to say, this is not fun and I'm going to get myself hurt. Now, I think that works for people who are middle-aged or so because we've been beat up by life enough to know that. The thing I'm curious about when we take this book to driver's education classes is if it will resonate with teenagers. Mm -hmm. There's a study that was done uh, a few years ago in Australia, Brisbane, Australia. And the researchers said they made some snide comment along along the way that... um, that uh, you can't put young men in cars and then just take them out there and see how they react. So they had to use skateboarders. And skateboarders have tricks that they know to do really well. They know they're going to land it, and they have tricks they're working on. So they ask them to demonstrate both. Show, show us a trick that, you're, uh, that you, you can land really easily, and show us a trick that you're not quite sure that you're trying to develop right now. And so they did this. And then they took... And, of course, young men have the worst psychology for getting an act. They just oh, do. Of I'm sorry to inter, to insult any young man that's listening, but their brains, they just that's do. That's just the they're, deal. They're the most dangerous part of the species, right? <laughs> and, then, and then they had this attractive young woman was the researcher next. She's there in a lab coat and she's got a clipboard. It's even funny that they said they had empirically determined that she was quite attractive. Like, really? I mean, they did. They like, <laughs> yeah, you yeah, can't just, just qualitatively do I, that. You got to have an empirical. They, they did. Quality. This is where the PhD comes in. Yes, yes. This is. <laughs> yeah. and, and they noticed that a high proportion of the young men were asking her for her phone number. So they were pretty sure that she was attractive. Yes. What they found okay. out was these young men where there's a point when they're taking off on the ramp where it's like go or no go. And when they got to the point of go or no go with the young woman watching them, they were more likely to go. Yes. Which meant they were more likely to fall and smash their heads. They were also more likely to land the particular trick. So they were also more risk-seeking, but also actually safer? No, like no, in, they weren't in, safer. in the landing? No, they no. weren't safer. Yeah. No, it was no, a bad choice. No, we're, we are built, our species is built particularly to have the young men take risks. The species survives, certain young men don't. Yes. <laughs> That's right. That's the calculus. I mean, if you look at the selfish gene <laughs> or something right. like that, yeah, you know, some of these guys are going to die mm-hmm. in the process. Well, you know, if you're, if you're um, saving, if you're a firefighter and you're rushing in to save someone's life at the risk of your own, that's heroic. 
if you're a soldier or a sailor and you're going to defend your country, that's heroic. If you're some 16-year-old kid and you're not paying attention uh, while you're driving and you die not to try to save someone else's life but just because you were distracted or because you decided to take an, a risk that in retrospect you'd say, well, I didn't mean to do that, well, then that's something we would want to avoid. Yeah, right. that's not heroic. Yeah. And so the question for me is if you take this like Zen, slow down, let's be happy, understand you are wired to be dissatisfied and that doesn't really help you right now and it makes you unsafe. If we take that kind of a message to teenagers, yeah. 17, 18 year old drivers, will they get it? Yeah. Given the powerful force that evolutionary psychology places on them. And I don't know the answer to the question. Yeah. And I don't know. But I go back to the uh, Sandhill study with the at risk youth in Chicago. And maybe just informing them may not, but maybe some training around it might. And, you know, that's we'll see, right, as they're going forward with this. uh, A question that I've got is what about the context? Uh, how how does someone in New York City, where the the pace is just tremendous, you know, it's just go 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 go. How how does someone hear the message there versus hearing it in a in a smaller town with a uh, you know a simpler and slower lifestyle? Uh, I, I think that those things could have an impact on us. Right. Context. We we are certainly very sensitive to our context. Yeah, yeah. and I was going to look it up before I came. Um, isn't Prevailing traffic speed, one of the defenses you can use if you're if you're speeding. I Prevail. have no idea, but it probably is. I mean, I, I don't know. We'll so if, if you're driving a car at uh, sixty miles an hour in a, in a zone that is has a, a speed limit of fifty five miles an hour, but everybody else is basically at sixty miles an hour, you can you can make the case to the courts that you were. I think it's an argument people make to say, I wasn't going any faster than anyone else, and so I got caught up in what everyone else was doing. Well, I just have and, to say that never happened to me. I was always going faster than everybody else when, <laughs> when I was ticketed. You're, you're that well, guy. But, <laughs> but, but on that, from a safety well, perspective, days, yes. does that actually, is that safer, or is it not safer? I mean, if you're going, if you're the 55 mile an hour and everybody else is going 70, are you more likely to cause an accident? At that, this brings then. me to uh, driving down the autobahn with Dr. Jim Harder when we were doing some of the research in Europe for uh, uh, interviewing some of those managers. Uh, it, certainly, if you're going to get in the left lane, yes, you better be hauling. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, you're going to get rear-ended. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, 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 that'd be interesting. I, I don't know. That's know? Why, that's why on the autobahn, the drivers of the Mercedes and the Beamers that are flying in the left lane are giving you the flashing lights a mile away. As soon as they see someone ahead of them, mile or two miles ahead, they're flashing their lights saying, "I'm barreling down on you." That's Get because the they'll, hell out of the way. That's because they'll be there in three seconds. <laughs> because right, that's how fast right, they're going. Right? right. So I know you want to get onto music. Well, I, I, I'm always interested in getting, yes. to, not just getting onto music, but getting into music. How about that? Okay. Um, so, Rod, you've got you've got something in mind here. You, you know, we we've been talking about you know behavioral sciences. We've been talking about the behavioral aspects of sleep and safety and all these kinds of things. What's the behavioral aspect of music? Well, 
my musical tastes are messed up. Um, I, I get on Pandora and I jump from one. Oh, that's kind of interesting. I'll jump from one thing to another to another. But I, I grew up in the 70s. So a lot of Yes, a lot of Genesis, a lot of Led Zeppelin, a certain amount of Leonard Skinnerd. Uh, to, my, um, to my great embarrassment when one of my friends, Sean McMahon, argued that our junior prom theme song should be um, In My Life, which is very... Very beautiful, beautiful. Beatles. Oh, so yeah. so reminiscent and all that. Yeah. I was one of those that voted for Freebird, which was the song for yes, our junior yes, prom. You got Freebird, <laughs> <laughs> which has certain behavioral economic implications because you know this bird you cannot change. You cannot change. <laughs> right? oh, well, there you go. But, oh yes, this bird you cannot change. But for our discussion today. Uh, there was one. I used this at a a lecture I did at the Northern Alberta Institute of Technology. They asked me to come up and and do a session on decision theory. Okay. And it's the song "Free Will" by Rush. Oh. Which includes the phrase, uh, "If you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. You still have made a choice. Yeah." That's Bravo. Deep. That wow. Man, that just that just smokes. <laughs> you can choose from phantom fears and killness that can kill. I will choose a path that's clear. I will choose free will. That's deep, isn't it? Wow. Wow. We never leave listeners on that deep a thought. This is going <laughs> to kill me. There's a first for everything, Tim. A is first it? for everything. Is this the, wow. Rod Wagner has brought us to yet another first, <laughs> leaving this deeply philosophical. Okay. All righty. Well, with that, uh, thank you. Thank you. Rod, it's so it's good to delight. have you. Yeah, thanks, this Rod. is so fun. And uh, thanks for sharing your insights with us. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Tim. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our behavioral grooves interview, have a free-flowing discussion on some of those topics, and whatever else comes into our hard hat covered safe brains. <laughs> I love that. There you go. We talked about safety a lot in we this episode. Did. And hard hats are an important part of safety. Well, and they protect your brain. <laughs> Which is a good thing. We are all about protecting that brain. It reminds me of the first bicycle that I ever bought. I uh, I was an adult. I grew up on a farm. I didn't have access to bicycles when I was You just had a horse. I had a horse. I did. I had a lot of horses. Why do you need a bike when you have a horse? Amen to that. (laughs) (laughs) So I buy my first bike as an adult. I'm in college and and, and the guy said, well, you should probably get a helmet. I'm like, well, why would I need a helmet? He said, well, if you fall and break your head, you won't be able to ride a bike anymore. <laughs> there you go. I thought that was pretty sound logic. That's pretty sound logic. I've been wearing helmets ever since. There you go. <laughs> it's interesting. I'm not from riding the bike, which, again, starting off as a kid, never, ever wore a helmet, right? Um, but also with skiing, downhill skiing. Uh, again, it wasn't until yeah, probably when? 15, well, 20 years ago that I started wearing a helmet. Oh, but you did. Oh, I'm, yeah. I wear a helmet every all the time All now. the time now, we, yeah. It's, it's crazy when you're going out on the ski hill now and you don't see or you see a person who's not wearing a helmet and you go look at them kind of kind of weird like, like like how are they not impacted by the social norms i the, exactly when 95 percent of the people on the hill have a have a helmet on are you so brazen to be able to go out there without a helmet that I th- you I, think you're you're that much better of a skier 
That's crazy. I, I felt the same way. Uh, I was at the airport yesterday uh, in Minneapolis, and the temperature was 18 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. And there were two women outside uh, in just sweaters uh, smoking cigarettes. And I thought, wow, that's just crazy. That's, that, that's dangerous to be doing that. Well, and think how addictive Oh, smoking must be yes, for yes. you to go out in negative 18 degrees Fahrenheit with a wind chill that I think was hovering around negative 40, yeah. negative 50 degrees yesterday. Yeah. So how addictive, how crazy is that? I, that would be, if I had ever started smoking, that would have been the indicator to me that, wow, I need to stop. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. Yeah, this is, this is a clue. This is not a good thing when I am putting oh. my, my body at risk because I need to get that drag. So, no, no. so for all of the smoker listeners that we have, come to Minnesota and, and stay with us for a winter and it might cure your uh, smoking <laughs> habit. Although it may not, as may is not. You know, indicated by these two women. Well, and there's still people that are not wearing uh, helmets on ski hills. So. Or, or seatbelts in cars. Oh. Just is amazing to me. I uh, so okay. Let's yeah, yeah. talk about <laughs> let's talk about uh, our conversation with Rod. What did you find fascinating besides this element of wearing helmets and seatbelts and other safety related he, measures? Hedonic adaptation. Hedonic adaptation. The hedonic treadmill. Man, I've I've been fascinated with it for some time because of of the impact of rewards on on people and how um, how do well, how, how does work life uh, impact our hedonic adaptation? Or actually, I should say that this way. How does hedonic adaptation impact our life and our satisfaction with job uh, and effort and all those kinds of things? And so I've been fascinated with this for a long time. And I thought that it was really great that Rod teed this up uh, in our discussion today. Well, I liked his quote, right? Um, this is a place where hedonic adaptation will kill you. Yeah, right. Right. Okay. Right. All right. So there's there's a pretty big component there of, of and yet we do like how is it? Uh, his example was so great to be the the young person learning how to drive and being terrified of the speed and the proximity of other cars on the road. Exactly. We are terrified by that as a, as a first time driver, but we so quickly adapt. Mm -hmm. You know, and and I think wow, that's that maybe that's not such a good thing. Yeah. When it comes to driving. When it comes to driving, when it comes to elements that can impact our safety, I think there's a, a number of those types of, of things. And I think it's a component where is there anything we can do to stop that adaptation, that hedonic adaptation, and get off of that treadmill in those types of situations. Yeah. The, uh, I, I don't think there's any research out there to support that. Listeners, if you're aware of some, let us know uh, because we're totally curious. I know that it's uh, it's good that we have that hedonic um, adaptation when it comes to things like bereavement on the, on the negative side, right? George Lowenstein did a, a paper, uh, actually a, a chapter in a, uh, Danny Kahneman's book um, from 1999 where he discussed how, uh, from a negative perspective, we end up, you know, we lose someone close to us, but we adapt, right? We, we come back to sort of this, this norm of, of emotions after a period of time. And that's a good thing. Well, so that goes back to, I mean, the, the people that coined this term were Brinkman and um, 
Campbell, right? And they talked about the hedonic uh, relativism, something around that, in 1971. Yeah. And then in 1978, Brinkman, along with some others, did this really interesting research on lottery winners versus paraplegics. And so that adaptation that you're just talking about in a bereavement component, he looked at people who won lotteries uh, and then also people who had um, some paraplegic kind of uh, accident and looked at their happiness after two years, three years, and don't quote me on the exact time frame on that. And what he found and what that, that study found was that there was a significant um, kind of reversion to the mean, yes. basically. Yes. And that the people who had won the lottery were fantastically happy and, and excited when that first happened. And for, people, for a while. For a while. And then the people who had the, you know, paraplegic uh, accident, uh, again, negatively impacted significantly for a while. But that after the course of about two years, they reverted to the mean and they were much, much closer to what their their starting point was there. Yeah. And that's an interesting component because what that implies, that implies a couple different things. It implies one from that bereavement perspective, it's a really good adaptation. Right. right. It's important for because us. Because if we're stuck in this, look, I lose a limb and now my life is over, which you feel, I think, probably pretty real. I've never lost a limb, but I would I would imagine that that feeling of that is, wow, my life is over. Um, you know, I can never be the same. But you adapt. And all of a sudden, the world isn't so negative. It isn't so bleak. But then... On the opposite side, you get this great windfall and you have this opportunity to, you know, we dream about this winning the lottery. We, we dream about getting that big bonus check, whatever that would be. And yet over the course of the long run, it really does not impact our overall happiness right. to that, that significant of an amount. That we return to the mean. Uh, typically, yeah. Sonia Lubomirsky uh, did some work on this on happiness, and and believe that um, that our adaptation about fifty percent of that comes from our DNA. The, she, the happiness set point. The, the happiness set point. Yeah. Right. And and that uh, that the context or the environment is, accounts for about ten percent, but that our choice, right, our 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 disposition and how we choose to act on things ends up being about 40% of it. So so in that situation, that, that component, there's 10% of your happiness is dependent on whether or not you won the lottery or if you right. have um, lost a limb or become paraplegic in some right. manner. And then, and then a, a large portion, this 40%, has to do with what we're going to do with it and how we're going to, to act. I think about uh, a, a situation in, in college where I had two friends uh, that were in a car uh, in a terrible accident, single car accident. Both of these young men were, were paralyzed from the waist down. Um, pretty similarly, one a little more than, than the other. Um, but the difference in how they responded, one ended up becoming head of the student council and was at every dance and literally danced every dance in his wheelchair. And the other became a recluse. And, um, in a, you know, very tragic and sad story, you know, on his part. But that choice is a big, big part of of how we deal with the tragic side of, of these adaptations. So thinking about this from an organizational or a work perspective, what are some things that organizations or leaders need to be thinking about 
as it applies to this hedonic adaptation and what that implies for their team, for their workers, et cetera? Well, uh, they're probably going to be more successful in increasing, sort of raising the tide, if you will, of, of making you know uh, an environment that is happier or provides more happiness for more people if they're doing small incremental things on a more regular basis. Okay. Right. So uh, uh, Dan Ariely did some work on uh, on this and found that that people that are doing small things on a regular basis, he was focusing more on exercise and religion, mm-hmm. um, but uh, doing more things on a uh, more small things more frequently ends up having a better impact to sort of raise the tide than one big thing at the end of the end of the year. So one component could be instead of that annual raise, right? Could you break that annual raise up into semi-annual raises or quarterly raises? That is a fascinating idea. So, think, I mean, you think about that, and, then, and I think the the concern is is that that is that raise then so small that it doesn't pass that just noticeable difference component, right? And so, right. if you don't notice it, it doesn't have any meaningful happiness impact or impact on your satisfaction being at work. However, if it's not, what this is implying, what what this work on hedonic adaptation, that hedonic treadmill implies is that you'll get a boost out of that raise. It will last for a certain amount of time, but then you will have this other boost much sooner than if it was an annual basis. And the, the impact, and I don't know this, I don't know if that the relative significance of wow, I get a $3,000 raise this year or I get, you know, three $1,000 raises this year. Does that $3,000 raise last three times as long as those, you know, the happiness or the excitement, the the pleasure that I get from that as the single 1000 I don't think so. I don't think that's what the research shows. I don't know that specifically. And I would... I would guesstimate that that would probably be a smarter way of moving forward. Yeah, well, companies like uh, Facebook and Google have, have gone to uh, more quarterly raises, especially for the very talented engineers, mm. uh, right, to to retain them. Now, I, I haven't seen any data to suggest that they're happier, but their retention of those employees is is higher. Well, happy employees mean that they're going to stay longer, right? It seems like that. it's not causal, though. We don't we don't know if their longevity is is necessarily applied to that. But that's a good point. No, so. but isn't but that is a fascinating question uh, that that uh, employers have stuck with the social norm for an annual pay raise for a long time, mm-hmm. and it would be really interesting if if we could gather some data to to help us to help inform us whether or not quarterly raises or even monthly raises could be more impactful for the happiness of the employee, for the engagement of the employee, for the, the kind of uh, work that they do. I think it could be really, really interesting. Yeah, and it's, I think it would be interesting from the perspective of, all right, do monthly raises, does that all of a sudden become an expectation and does that then decrease the amount? And again, exactly. how, 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 how big can that raise be? So- so that's that. What about the other aspect that I found really fascinating from this was the the conversation we had about how do you program self-driving cars to make these moral 
um, judgment calls, right? Yeah. When you have, yeah. all right, it, it's the old uh, cable car, right? You pull the switch, do you kill two people down this this road if you pull that switch or do you kill the infant down the other one if you don't pull the switch yeah and there's so there's two things about that that are that i found really interesting in in um since our discussion with rod and the 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 first is that that trolley car model has been around like since 1905 the university of wisconsin at madison um was uh really really important and uh important work and it's also being held up today at MIT Media Lab. Okay. There is a group actually called the Moral Machine that is that is trying to solve this problem in real time right now, which is pretty cool. In in programming, uh, the, the moral codes or they call it the moral code of machines, robots of AI. Yeah. So it goes back to um, was it Philip Dick who wrote the I forget what the. Yeah, and so, iRobot. iRobot. Yeah, 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 that's yeah. what that was from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's why you're here too. Yeah. <laughs> well, just... <laughs> you help me think. You help my brain work. No, but the, that interesting component of how do you make those moral decisions? I mean, right. what, this what, is complicated stuff. How, how do you build the the algorithm to say a baby is worth more than two? You know, one baby is worth more than two senior citizens. Or yeah. wow, but if that baby is you know four years old, does now what, what what's the age? Is it is it a ten year old? Is it a fifteen year old? Is it a twenty two year old? All of a sudden, oh wait, there's two that outweighs a twenty two year old. So imagine Those, and imagine the computing power of being able to tap into the twenty three and Me database that uh, that in in oh. in these seconds that that now the car knows that that baby uh, is has a sixty percent chance of, of getting MS yeah uh, you know sometime later in life this gets to be pretty pretty complicated or, or stuff. can tap into their criminal record of these 10 yes. people and all yeah. of a sudden it's like oh oh this person this person you know had uh two criminal counts and these others did not yeah so, so does that weigh into this decision making or or this person was a murderer and this person was a thief oh <laughs> so <laughs> it, oh my gosh it, it just boggles my mind yeah. I mean, you think yeah. about the implications of all of those factors there's a a ton of components that we could just we can wax and wax and wax. Okay, but I got to ask you a music question. Okay, Rod brought up this idea of uh, just be a little more zen, a which little I, more zen, a little more zen, which I super dig. Okay. But I want to ask you, Kurt, do, are there is there music that you use to help cue up uh, sort of chill out experiences? So we. You, you prefaced me before the podcast on this. So um, I've been thinking about this, and I think I told you back then that, uh, back, what, 20 minutes ago, um, that that I have, there, there's not a genre. There's not this, like, yeah, I have this certain artist or this certain type of music that I do listen to. Because um, it's situational for you. It, because it's situational for me. And so I, I, I mentioned, I go, I can listen to some really, you know, soft, you know, music that might be more, you know, my Angus and Julia Stone, who I just adore and I love them. And that can get me in my Zen mood, my Damien Rice, my, Mm. you know, those, those beautiful melody kind of softer kind of components. I can also get into Zen by that hard driving, you know, 
nine inch nails, uh, you know, my ministry where it's just so driving that I just go into a, a different kind of Zen zone, but wow. it's, it's there. So wow. how about you? I feel so much more boring after hearing your description. I I like to go to certain to certain tracks and certain albums. Uh, Pat Metheny's uh, "One Quiet Night" is uh, from two thousand three is a, a great album where Pat Metheny's a jazz guitarist. Okay, and he um, has a recording studio in his home, and it was raining one night, and so he just went down to the studio and recorded fourteen tracks. Uh, just one after the other that were impeccably perfect, of course, because he's a master guitarist and it's just gorgeous. And it ref- it all reflects in this. You kind of almost feel like you're listening to what it would be like if it were raining outside mm. because these songs are just kind of moody and, and smooth and easy. And Do so. you ever use like those natural sound components. I know they, they have those for meditation oftentimes where it's you listen and it's raindrops. Or yeah, it's yeah, I the, do. I do. I like wind it. and various different things. So I, you do. I like rain. And and, and the <laughs> you sound like of, rain. I do. And I like the sound of a fireplace too. Okay. So I, I will listen to the sound of a fireplace. Interesting. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't think I've ever admitted that in public. <laughs> now you have. Even it's my out there wife. Forever. Yeah, all right. All right. You like the sound of a fireplace, the crackling of the fire, the wood I do. that pops every once in a while, yeah. that kind of component. And I, and so I a gas listen. fireplace is no, not the same? Not at all. Oh, no. All right. No. And I will listen to it, actually. <laughs> I will. Well, that's fascinating. Yeah. All right. Well, with that, uh, Let's conclude this episode of Behavioral Grooves. If you enjoyed this, please go out and give us a a rating on Apple or one of the other pod services and let people uh, know that you like us and uh, let us know what you think. So, and with that, keep keep on on grooving. grooving. Hey, we did that one better.